0: Eve, Hello and welcome to Season 2 of the Air Podcast. I'm David Smith and I'm joined today by Franny Walsh, Orms Patrick and Marty Gillespie. How are we? Season
1: 2, huh?
0: All oh good, all oh good. good. Good to be back.
1: Still here anyway?
0: Still here, just about. <laughs> yeah, we're back for another full season of the podcast. You'll be probably disgusted to hear, but... Um, all the episodes we'll be covering uh, over on LarryR.com. So, 10 books again this season. So head on over there and read along with us. Today, we're going to be discussing our first episode, Boys Don't Cry by Fina Scarlett. Brilliant Irish debut novel. And we're delighted to announce that Fina herself actually joined us for an interview about the books. For all that, lads, it's been a while since we've seen each other. I'll catch yeah. up with the last few months have been. Franny, I'll start with you. You're looking very fresh there. I see you've done the, the most <laughs> You've left Barcelona here back in the motherland in Waterford. How are you getting on?
2: Uh, not too bad, yeah. I'm liking being home, but there's, yeah, a like, bit of a bit of a culture shock, I suppose. When I got home, I felt I couldn't be having facial hair that was as outrageous as that around here. So <laughs> I had to get rid of it. So I suppose the weather would have been the other big culture shock, actually, because I'm freezing now all the time. So i have wearing wearing hoodies in the house and the whole lot. like. But uh, no, other than that, it's been great to be home. It's, um, it's good to see the family, I suppose, and... Uh, Get a few chicken rolls and a few chips and battered sausages and whatnot in. So um, yeah, I've
1: I've heard they do great tapas down in Waterford, funny.
2: <laughs> I haven't come across it now yet. They actually don't really do that good tapas in Barcelona. <laughs> I've been told it's not really the home of it. Yeah, you have to go elsewhere in Northern Spain for the really good tapas, apparently. But certainly not Waterford. It's not not the place for it.
0: Would you go back to Barcelona, or be any other travel plans coming up? Or are you content to be back in Waterford now for the for the time being?
2: i uh, planning to go to Vancouver in the first week in November. So I'll be back here for another eight weeks or so and then tip over then that direction then. So that's the next uh, destination on the list. Happy days.
0: Not so bad. You probably go to Tashay once you're safely across the water. As yeah.
2: Well, it seems like anything goes over there as well, yeah. So it's probably a, probably a gotino or something next. Sideburns maybe. Never know. Mohawk.
0: Brilliant stuff. In, <laughs> you've been in lockdown like myself in Sydney here since... Uh, season one ended unfortunately. Uh how the last few months been for you. Yeah, not
1: much has changed. I'm I'm glad that uh, the, the listeners can't actually see us because I've got a, a full mop of hair and Smith are a little bit similar. The barbers have been closed. We haven't been able to go is it was it five K or ten K from the house and yeah it's been it's been quiet. But uh lucky enough the weather's come come good now. I was down at the beach, got a nice bit of red colour in the face and so, looking forward to next month when things will open up properly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Same here. And you'll be able to keep a low profile now when I can slag you tomorrow about Liverpool for the smashing. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm glad this is on before, uh, before the game, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> <Are> <laughs> things
0: in bad shape over there now, are they? Uh, well, we are in bad shape. Because,
3: are you asking about yeah. us or COVID? COVID? <laughs> <laughs> Ah, uh, things... He's don't uh, look too, in too great shape either now, but... <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> the vaccine rate's gone up a lot, so uh, we've been in lockdown for a good while, like, since we were last on the podcast, but Back. they're bringing in mm. restrictions from tomorrow, actually. Some restrictions, like, about outside gatherings and numbers and stuff, and then a couple of weeks, or next month, it'll be, um hopefully, pubs and restaurants and all that open, so, yeah, hopefully we'll be out of it soon. Marty, how's... Yeah. Fix with you were you playing tennis tournament
3: recently or something yeah, still still in it, fingers crossed, but uh i'm playing I'm playing the second seed in the singles now and the second seed in the doubles, so probably gonna get me ass handed to me, but <laughs> it's been enjoyable up to this point anyway um no, we played I played a, a different one earlier on in the summer, and um, like a lower lower grade and I got beaten the first round and the fella the fella who beat me lost in his next round so I was kind of thinking you know I might only get one match in this tournament like and you know we beat out the gate again but no I won my first round and won the won the other match as well Woo-hoo. so woo, I was delighted with myself to be honest but yeah no that's in fairness I suffer, the tennis was pretty much the highlight of my summer but um, but now it was great. It was a great summer. Really. Felt really short, but
0: classic teacher complaint. Given Edward only having the two months off. I th- did. You hear one complaint there? <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: you took the words out of my mouth, it? Yeah. But
3: much shorter for us,
0: my ideas,
3: All I said, all I said was that a good summer, and you were saying I'm complaining about it. <laughs> classic pessimistic you know? me, man. Always fucking. Is it worse than the Mayo folk now? I
0: know. speaking of which, that brings us on nicely. Did everyone watch the game yet? Oren, I know we stayed up till crazy hours watching it with the time difference last night. Franny, did you do anything for the game? Did you watch it anywhere? Yeah,
2: first Gaelic football game I have watched since uh, last year's All final. I kind of make it's kind of an annual tradition. But uh, it's like mass. Wasn't that impressive? Wasn't that impressive that this year I have to say it's better when Dublin are in it. Sir. Oh, you shut that. up. Get out of it. <laughs> Yeah, Either I felt the game yesterday there was an awful lot of wides and shite like, this is the this is the opinion I'm a very uh, very uncultured Gaelic football supporter now but that was uh, my take on it <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah I somewhat agree with that though like anticlimactic is probably not the word but um, without the big hitters like without Dublin Tyrone bring a different sort of different brand of football should we say so it's not as electric it's not as uh, exciting
3: I don't know yeah. like I don't know what the, what was majorly different between Mayo style and Tyrone style. They were both heavy runners. They both ran a pace, a like quick ball in. Tyrone would give loads of quick ball in. It didn't what, what make that, it. that haircut there now a but like Pat Balan giving out about. Them the <laughs> I was
1: I was cheering for Tyrone. I have to say, my club over here uh, has a lot of Tyrone men in it, so I'm developing a soft spot for Tyrone. Possibly only. See your fingers are like crossed,
3: there, or non- uncross <laughs> those
0: fingers. So you might have noticed that we're one member short for today's podcast. Hodge, who's usually features, is currently down in Ackle, I think, drowning the sorrows with the, the Mayo locals. But he joined us a little earlier when Marty, Franny, Hodge, and I spoke to Fina about our brilliant debut, Boys Don't Cry.
4: So, uh, my book is called Boys Don't Cry, and it's set in inner city Dublin, and it centres around two brothers, 17 year old Joe and 12 year old Finn. And it's dual narrative, so, Finn is sort of detailing the. Ab- up to a tragedy and joe is then detailing the events in the aftermath Uh, i suppose it looks at choice as well and the choices we make in the aftermath of a tragedy and also do circumstances such as where we're from or what our parents do do they impact on the choices made available so really sort of the privilege of choice as well and do we ever really have free will in the choices that we make things like that so that's it (laughs) In a nutshell,
5: thanks very much. Summed it up a lot better than we could there. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, This is your debut novel. I am just interested, like, how how long have you been working on this idea?
4: Yeah, so I sort of came right to writing later. I'm not somebody who always wanted to be a writer. Writing was something that I never thought I was going to do. Like, I loved English in um, school. But I actually don't remember any of the written element at all. i leave even start like I don't I don't remember. I must have done some sort of an essay or something. I can't remember any of the written element. I loved the plays, absolutely loved the plays and the poetry. Plays probably because it's all dialogue and character and action, which I'm drawn to anyway. And um, so I suppose it was about maybe it's over three years ago now that I was on Twitter and saw a tweet from a palliative care doctor. And basically a paediatric palliative care doctor and he was asking the patients in his care what they would miss the most when they died so that was sort of like the spark inspiration for the book so when I read that tweet I sat down at the laptop and wrote the first chapter of the book which was really really different to anything else that I had been writing and um, before that I was sort of writing funny little stories for kids and things like that because I was working in school and I had my own kids and just doing it for a bit of fun really and um, so yeah, that's where the spark inspiration came from for this book. So it took me maybe about two years to write it, and then it sold uh, on the first of April. I got the phone call to say it had sold of twenty twenty, thinking it was in April Fools, but um, and then it was published April the twenty second of April of twenty one. So it was a year then between it being sold and actually being out published.
5: Uh, that was really interesting to say. You really you really like the plays in school because. Um... I suppose you could imagine the book as an adaptation on stage. Like, I, I don't know, I, the last play I saw was The Snapper and it was in the Gate Theatre. And, like, that kind of style, if you know what I mean, like, you, a lot of the scenes in your book you could imagine would, would play out very well on stage.
4: Yeah, a few people have actually said that to me, and it's funny because. If I ever thought of myself as a writer, it would have been a playwright, probably rather than the novelist. Something I definitely want to try my hand at down the line, whether it's adapting this or writing something. I'd love to write something completely different for stage, definitely. So down the line, that's something I hope to do at some stage.
3: You you mentioned the the end of like the palliative care, uh, the tweet you saw. Other than that, how much of your own you know life experiences in it, or what drew you to the inner city Dublin? You know when you're from Hartstown or you know I don't know too much about him. <laughs> but
4: um, my my dad is from Inner City Dublin, just off Dorset Street, and there's a lot of him in this book actually. So when he grew up, when he was about eleven or twelve, his dad signed him up. There was a man in Inner City Dublin giving free music lessons to kids in the area, and signed him up and his brother up. And basically, that changed his whole life. He ended up getting scholarships to do music. When he was in his 30s, he went to college to train as a music secondary school teacher, ended up teaching in our area in a disadvantaged school, and wanted to give the same opportunities for children that he was teaching that he was giving himself. So, there's a lot of that um, in the book. And then, where I'm from in Dublin 15, during the 90s, sort of early 2000s, it's where the Westies sort of operated out, so there was a lot of drugs in the community and in the area as well, so there's a a mix of a lot of different things in there, now I haven't had the exact experience of this, um, that's in the book, but um, it's sort of lots of different things coming together that have influenced. Yeah.
3: Because it seemed, it seemed very personal, like it seemed like, you know, almost like a collection of gathered stories, like, you know, like you're listening to the the owl fell out the arms folded in the pub with the paint telling, tell, telling yarns, you know.
4: Yeah, there's lots, there's lots of my own stories in there. Like, the pub scenes are definitely lifted right out of my own childhood. And the graffiti, there's, like, even the lines where graffiti are lifted. And Ned is lifted, you
3: know. Ned, I, lo- I was about to ask you, my, one of my favourite things about the whole book is Ned.
4: <laughs> Ned in every single parish in Ireland, like, definitely, you know. So he's... Uh, <laughs> my own sort of anecdotes and things have
2: gone into the book yeah yeah very good um I know I know the lads were uh, speaking a little bit earlier on about uh, how you're a teacher and their own background about teachers and stuff and I was kind of wondering did you feel like that kind of interaction with kids in, in that way kind of informed the book a lot or did you find that you kind of drew those characters that were of school going age kind of through those experiences as well or how much did you find it affected it
4: yeah I think it's a it's a massive part like I'm teaching 17 years now you know so that's a long time and in a lot of different type of skills and backgrounds um and even just being surrounded by a child's voice all the time you know it's uh, it's definitely informed us and when i went to write the book actually um originally i thought i was going to write it about uh, the ma annie and finn but when i sat down to write it it was joe just kept coming out his voice so it's sort of interesting that way and that's how it happened and I also think it's only thinking about this afterwards because somebody asked me a question about this before and I hadn't even thought about it before. But uh, maybe it was a subconscious thing as well not to write from this perspective of a mother because I am a mother myself. My son is 13, similar to Finn. And I think it would have been incredibly difficult being in that headspace of Annie writing this book where it was easier doing it from Joe's, if that makes sense, as well a sort of protection mechanism a bit like, I remember listening to Maggie O'Farrell when she was talking about Hamlet and she said the same, uh, like that book is something that she has been thinking about for a long time, but she didn't actually write it until her son was a lot older because she didn't want it sort of too close to home nearly, you know, that sort of way. So it's uh, it's funny the way the mind works like that, you know.
0: Like it's obviously a very emotional book to read. Uh, like it was a very emotional for you to write as well, like as a mother and I suppose just connecting to the characters
4: yeah it's mad actually no it's really people ask me that as well and I cry at absolutely everything I'm so bad my kids are always absolutely mortified like I went to see Toy Story 3 and I was or whatever that newest one was and I was in absolute floods and they were looking at me going what the fuck is wrong with you you're
5: not not the only one there Uh, I was also in bits at the end of Toy Story 4 that was tough. yeah Yeah.
4: daughter was absolutely obsessed like obsessed with Toy Story and when Woody is there no one wants to play with me anymore it's like no one wants to play with Woody in our house either anymore like I was in absolute fits but when I was writing this no I, I didn't cry at all when I was writing it at all and I think it's because I was so conscious that I wanted this to be really authentic I wanted it to be real I didn't want it to be sort of patronising or condescending or anything at all like that so I was trying to take myself out of the characters as much as possible and just letting them speak like I found writing Finn much, much easier than writing Joe, actually, which is funny enough because, and I think it is because like his story is, is complete, like it's inevitable, you know, exactly what's going to happen to him. Whereas Joe was really, really hard to write. Cause I found that I, I found myself putting things in for Joe a lot of the time, sort of him explaining his actions where he'd never actually do that. So it was me sort of nearly mothering him, explaining why he was doing this, that and the other. So in the editing process, I cut a whole lot of stuff out of Joe's narrative because um, it just didn't seem true that it was something that he'd do or it's something that he'd say. Uh, so I found him really difficult to write. And then, again, it was only in the, like that, I think it was when I got back the proofs or whatever, and you have to read through it, that I bawled during bawled during fin section. And that was the first time because I think I was approaching it more as a reader than as than as a writer. So it's, it's really strange. <laughs>
5: you just mentioned there that you... You caught a lot from Joe's story, but what I found in reading Joe's um, arc was like even the language he was using showed a lot of his emotions. Like, he didn't specifically say how he was feeling all, a lot of the time, but it just, he just had this built up anger inside him that just came out with like the, the, the odd f bomb here and there, like, you know, in, in uh, uh, f- funny situations or whatever. I just thought that was really well handled. Um, and his character was developed really well in that, in that regard.
4: Yeah, that, like he was so, so, hard, like he was driving me absolutely mad. But then I remember, I say this all the time as well, I went to this, like that's one thing with lockdown is you got to go to all these events and talks and everything that you'd never get to go to otherwise. And I remember going to see Andre Ackman, I think his name is, and he won't Call Me By Your Name. And he said that he was asked a question before about why did the two characters never actually say I love you? Why don't they say I love you in the book? And he was there, they don't need to say I love you. The reader knows that they love each other. Like You don't have to say it. And that was like a light bulb moment for me. And I remember after that, is I went and I cut loads more the Joe then as well. Because exactly as you were saying, he doesn't need to say these things for the reader to actually know that's what he's saying. You know, so... You know, the way some like things come when you need to hear them, I suppose. That's the other thing, you know.
0: The climax to Joe's story is really interesting. Everything seems to move so fast. Was that, like, intentionally kind of left open to interpretation? Or what made you write it in that way, I suppose?
4: Yeah, so I went through that so many different times. And I know it's something that has polarised people. Some absolutely hate it. Some really love it. And, you know, it's, it, it was something completely intentional on my part that I wanted it to be sort of chaotic. I wanted it to be confused. And... And um, it's not something that I think Joe would sort of explain and that it's coming directly from his viewpoint as well. And I want to leave it open ended as well, that you don't know if what's happened there is going to get Joe out of Desi's world. You're hoping that it, it means that he has a chance of getting out or not. And um, so I wanted it to be ambiguous in that way. Yeah, that's really interesting
2: this being your first novel, was there anything you felt that you had learned from it in terms of the way you write in the future or the way you approached your second book?
4: Yeah, like definitely that leaving space for the reader. Like that's something that's really, really important to me. So like, like that taking myself out, like anything that I felt that the character was talking, that I was talking through a character, um, and it's not something that I even realised. And I remember even the editor at the time, was like, do you think Joe would really say this? I was like, of course he'd say that. What the hell are you talking about? And it's only when I read it, I was like, well, oh, actually, no, that's me. That's me again, explaining them. Um, and it's really funny now because when I read other books, I can see when write a writer is talking through a character, which I never ever would have picked up on really before, unless it was very, very obvious. Um, so that's definitely something that I'm a lot more conscious of um, this time around, definitely.
2: And is, is there anything you could tell us about the new novel or uh, rough details or?
4: Yeah, so the new one, I, I got a one book deal. So this one is, I really, really just fingers crossed hoping that the publisher wants to take this one on too because I absolutely love the publisher and where I'm obsessed with my editor, she's just phenomenal. So fingers crossed. But uh, the second one is set where I'm from, sort of Mount view, Hirstown area. And it's set in a hairdressers and it's sort of over one day. But it's uh, two childhood friends who became more, they were going to emigrate to New York together. And then he goes, she stays behind. Her mother ends up having dementia and she wants to stay home, be a care. It's only her and her mom at the hairdresser. So basically it's about 20 years later and there is word out that he's back and she's sort of reminiscing on the past and deciding should she go over. But she hasn't been able to move on from it at all. So... That's it. <laughs> Not is ex- it. very well.
3: <laughs> Looking forward to that. Did I hear, Fina, that Boys Don't Cry originated a different title and that that might be the title of the second book? Did I hear that?
4: I told you that. That's hilarious.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have teaching connections, Fina. I have teaching connections. <laughs>
4: It's so funny. Yeah, originally, you see, I don't really hold much weight in titles. I know what other people do. I just put a title down and work with it. But I know if it's not right. So I had originally called Boys Don't Cry someone like you just as a working title. And I don't even know when I changed. It's halfway through. I changed to Bo- Boys Don't Cry and it just seemed to work for it. And then I remember it was it. It was in the editing process, and I've been told so many times that you never keep your title. That your title is always, always changed. And I got to keep the title. The title was never even brought up by the publishers or anything at all. And it's only halfway through that I was um, watching. I think it was a great um, something like that. And Mallory Blackman, and she's a she's a book called Boys Don't Cry. And I was like, all right, I better change it. But no, I didn't. It stuck with it. Um, and then for the second, I started off calling that someone like you, but I've changed it again now to. Jesus, I can't remember, forget me not or something, but I'll be changing it again because that doesn't fit it either. So,
3: <laughs> in certain, the boys don't cry kind of hits harder. It hits with the kind of emotional side of like, you know, Finn and Joe's relationship with their dad as well, you know.
4: I think so. And it talks about that whole culture as well, and um, you know, that both the boys are brought up in, you know.
3: It's the
5: first book I've read that kind of hones in on that reality for a lot of people in Dublin and that inner city Dublin and that that vicious cycle that a lot of people are in um have you read any books like that are set in the same in in inner city Dublin that you could kind of recommend
4: like Roddy Doyle definitely is my go-to and um like particularly Paddy Clark ha 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 I think and that's from the child perspective as well and you know even the fact like film in particular tv as well like the family roddy doyle's the family is phenomenal like and again just goes through for all different members in the family going through the same thing and just the way it's told uh he's such a gift for dialogue and just capturing dublin on the page and have the love for dublin in there as well because again you know it, it didn't want it to be like, anyway, stereotypical or, as I said earlier, like patronised or nothing at all like that, you know? So it's... um, And to get the humour in there as well.
5: (laughs) How how important do you think it is for books like yours to be written? You know what I mean? For people to see the human side of of people in these situations.
4: Yeah, I think it's like when I was going when when this was um out on submission to agencies, like the thing I heard over and over and over again was we don't know where this book fits on the shelf we don't know how we're going to sell this, we don't know how we're going to market this um I got a offer from one publisher, so all the others rejected it for very similar reasons and it's i don't think this book is anything out of the ordinary or out of mainstream really to be honest, and it's um it, one thing with publishing it can be quite um safe and wanting to go with safe stories and again I didn't think there was anything unusual in in the book that I was writing Um, there's space for everybody in publishing there's space for all voices and uh, again I'm just writing a snapshot of a particular place and time I'm not saying that I'm talking for anybody but I do think there's a lot of postcode discrimination, particularly in Dublin. Like, I know I get a lot of the time, well, you don't sound like you're from Hartsdale. It's like, well, what's someone from Hearthstone supposed to sound like? And that's why I wanted, like, Jasmine in there as well. Like, not everybody from a certain postcode is living in disadvantage either. You know, it's um, having a family support network, having other people around you too. You know, it's... um, It's not just black or white. There's whole shades of grey in there too. So it's, um,
3: yeah. I find that really interesting that so many publishers put it back on you for that reason. Like one of my favourite things about it was how accessible it was. Like, you know, I feel like I could give it to anyone and like it could be their first book to read in five years and they'd be able to, you know, to read it, enjoy it and pick up on the feelings and the messages. And, you know, I just... Uh, like I just I, I can't believe that that was put back on you for that
4: yeah it's funny isn't it but um I you starting you when the when I was getting that from agent, I was really frustrating because when you're submitting to agents it's you go onto this thing called the slush pile i don 't know if any of your writers, but you sort of send in um your first three chapters of the book, you send in like a cover letter saying why you want to be wrecked by this agent and you send a synopsis. And I sort of knew when I was getting that feedback again and again and again, because I was getting a lot of full requests and people reading the book and they were saying, oh, we love this and the writing's great, but we don't know where this fits on the shelf. We don't know where this will, how this will sell. And then I remember there was one agent and they actually contacted, they were really lovely and contacted me and said, listen, we really want to take this on. But what we do is when we want to take on a writer is we sit down and we write a list of editors who we think will want to take this on. And your list just wasn't big enough for us to sign you. And like I was really appreciative of that because I was there going, this is somebody." Now I know the reason why it's getting rejected so much. And it just takes that one yes. So for anybody listening there who is trying to get traditionally published, it really does just take that one yes. And the one thing I think that really helped me as well is that because I'd had that response before, I was sort of expecting the same when it went out to publishers, Um, and I just started writing book two straight away and then of course like it went on submission about a week before everything locked down for the first time so I was absolutely convinced it wasn't going to sell and I think that really helped me too and it's just persevering getting on with the next book and just trying to get nothing's ever wasted and that book I knew I had done everything that I could with the book for it in order for it to, to sell and if it didn't sell it just meant it didn't sell. Um, and I would have been happy to put it in a drawer and just move on to the next one. So it's it's a strange, strange business.
0: <laughs> I kind of, when I was reading it, would ima- could imagine it as like a limited series or something like that. Maybe on, I don't know, or RTE or something like that. Would, you, would that be something you'd love to see or you think there could be potential? Well,
4: there for? might there might be news on that in some front down the line. So I can't say much about it, but oh. fingers crossed. <laughs> fingers crossed it all goes ahead. So, yeah. <laughs>
0: Very good, yeah. I enjoyed the uh, references to love, hate. A couple of them, like in the
2: within the book, I thought that was very yeah. funny. Yeah, that's fair.
4: What was that film we were going to say? I'm actually really curious to
2: know. I know, <laughs> uh, just when Pod was talking about the um, the books, like funny books that might have kind of been, I've worked on similar themes. Was the film that came into my head that I saw a couple of years ago? I don't know if you've seen it, but it's called Michael Inside. It was set in. I've heard of it, Yeah. It was said in Dublin and it was kind of, it was, a, it was a young lad that got kind of sucked into a life of crime, kind of not similar to Joe in your book, but kind of, it echoed some of what you were saying about choices at the start, that, you know, it, it kind of, it asked a lot of questions about how free we are to make choices based on our circumstances in life and stuff, and it kind of covered some of the same ground, so I was just kind of, uh, I was curious to see how you seen it
4: yeah no it's that's been on my radar all right but um yeah like you know it's even through teaching as well I remember teaching in school and there was a boy who used to get two buses to go to school because it was a nicer place to be like no one was getting him up to go to school and you're sort of there going it's he was nine (laughs) so you're sort of there going like it's just completely people take choice for granted like you know you just do and um it's it's always very humbling when you come across something like that you know.
3: I wouldn't mind asking a little quick fire, just um, top five books off the top of your head.
4: Oh, yeah, I'm going to tell you now there's one that's out at the moment Luke Cassidy's Iron Annie. If you haven't read that, get it on your radar now. It is absolutely phenomenal. It's set in Dundalk, it's sort of like uh, set in the underworld, it's gritty, it's just absolutely hilarious and written in the vernacular. It's just amazing. So, that's one I'd highly, highly recommend. Uh, let me see, what else have I been reading recently? My mind is going blank now. Um, I love Anathan and Everything by Donald Ryan. and um, Kevin Barry, Nightbook to Tangier, as well as another huge favourite of mine. My- That's a brilliant yeah, book. it's just phenomenal. He's, again, just a master at dialect and hearing speech and everything. He's just brilliant. Um, Hamlet by Maggie O'Farrell I read um, a while ago as well, which is just utterly beautiful. And The Nickel Boys by... Colson White if you haven't read that that is just it blew me away and I think it's I couldn't read that without thinking of the Magdalene Laundries and then also like when my dad was younger his mother had twice and was in quarantine for six months and if it hadn't been for a cousin of my uh, nana who took them in they would have gone into care like the three boys so like when I was reading that book there's uh, it's just really 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 powerful so there are a few I'd recommend
0: thanks for that eh? We had, spoke to Louise Nealon before in, last season and she was saying like getting stuff from like Marion Keys and that is like the surreal moment when the book is coming out.
4: It's insane. The Marion Keys. When Marion Keys uh, tweeted about my book, it was absolutely bananas. And my dad died in December. So it was just a really, really weird time as well. And bringing the book out and everything like that was just really odd. But when Marion tweeted for the book it was nuts like the family whatsapp group that's including all my aunts and cousins and like I mean this massive extended family and I hadn't said anything and next minute my aunt was like oh my god Marion Keys is everybody knows who Marion Keys is like even like my husband and my husband isn't a reader at all like he even knows who Marion Keys is and just the madness and the jokes and the stuff we were sending and my sister was making these Ridiculous videos of me and Marion Keys, and you know it was just—it was lovely. Like it was really nice to have something to celebrate in all the other madness too. But it's just so surreal. Like it's really surreal.
5: <laughs> it's it's surreal, but it's also real. If you know what I mean. Like it's just like it's actually a thing now. If you know, like it's like this is reality. It's mad.
4: Yeah, yeah. It's very hard actually to get your head around that because and again I think it's because it had so much rejections and I feel like that it was just really good luck and right place, right time that it actually ended up being published and that it got in the desk of the editor who said yes, that I sort of separated myself. I didn't think it was going to get any sort of reaction or response at all. I sort of had in my head, Oh yeah, it's going to be published and then it's grand and so it's really weird then trying to adjust yourself to the, to when it's out and uh, not really explaining that really well. But your headspace, it's it's very strange.
5: Yeah, a great deal of resilience there, isn't it? Just to keep going and believing in it and believing in yourself and believing in your, your story, yes. isn't it? Like, and just, yeah. it's
4: mad. It. Yeah, no, you do. You need really, really, really thick skin. Because <laughs> <laughs> then the reviews come in, like, you know, the Goodreads or the ones there, Amazon ones. <laughs> <laughs>
3: do you you actually look at those do you go looking for those do you
4: know no I don't really the odd time I do like I had I had a one star recently that was like um oh I only gave this a star because it was the only thing I could read on my Kindle but generally generally I don't and I sort of made the decision like when you're first published it's madness right and you know it's all this stuff and you get into this hype about, oh my God, like sales and oh my God reviews and oh my God, all this type of thing. And I'm not really like that type of person at all. I'm usually, look, all I can do is write this and I'm definitely of the mind that, you know, every book is not for every reader. And if you don't like it, that's absolutely fine. Like, and if I do get a one-star review or two-star review, that's that reader's opinion. Like there's loads of books that I've been recommended that I don't like, you know, that's just the reality of reading. It's so subjective and um, so no I don't really look at that anymore or I just don't place value on them like I did at the beginning because like if you're valuing your worth by your five-star reviews then you have to value your worth by your one-star reviews and like your worth as a writer isn't anything to do with reviews anyway so and it's out of your control like once you have the book written that's literally all you can do is write the book like the sales the marketing any of that none of that like it's just there's nothing you can do about it anyway so it's only going to stress you out if you're if you're getting in there that's a great way of looking at it now. that took a bit of time <laughs> usually i usually am like that though but i remember a friend was talking to me before and she said you only ever talk negatively about your writing and your book like you never ever talk negatively about anything else so why are you doing that about your book and i never realized that i did do it but i but i did like and i still do to an extent you know i or you think i actually find it much easier to accept one star two star reviews than i do a five and it's just, I'd say that's an Irish way, anyway. Like I always I'd think, say, you're you're absolutely. Irish. Absolutely, yeah. You're yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt, mate. That you're Irish, isn't it? Being uh, so, nice, like that's constantly. Ah, yeah, sure. Like they're only being nice or whatever, but yeah. um, yeah, that's just part of it as well. But I think if you can just, if you can as much as you can, just focus on the writing and what you're doing, and not compare yourself to whatever else is going on, is the only way, really. Because you will, really you drive yourself absolutely mental.
0: Pin, thanks so much for joining us. Been so generous with your time that's on brilliant. a Thursday evening. I'm sure you've dinners and everything's been. We took him off the Wi-Fi. I said you
4: can't go on the Wi-Fi now for an hour. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
0: brilliant.
4: That's brilliant. Thanks so much. Like really enjoyed that. So thanks for being so ah, lovely.
0: Yeah, lovely. When you're right, right, the next one, sure you'll have to come back and talk about that.
4: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right. Thanks. All right. All right. Thanks All right, so much. Nice. Thanks. See, thanks. You See you. Bye.
0: Our interview with Fina Scarlett, the author of Boys Don't Cry. So I hope you all enjoyed it. We really enjoyed chatting to her and massive thank you to her for coming on to the podcast. Oren, you weren't with us when we spoke to Fina. I don't blame you for not getting up at 4am Sydney time, like me. Joys of having a terrible sleep pattern. What did you think of the book? Did you enjoy it?
1: Yeah, unfortunately, I couldn't drag myself out of the bed for that one. But uh, it was a great interview and it was great to hear Fina talk. So kind of openly and candidly about actually writing the book. Um, I I enjoyed the book. I thought I really, lads I don't know about you, but I thought it was incredibly emotional. Um, I wouldn't be I wouldn't be one for showing emotions, kind of wearing them on my sleeve or anything. But uh, there was times, and I was, and I couldn't really put the book down. there Was times, when it was kind of bringing me close to tears, and I was like, Geez, Jesus, books, movies, it, it doesn't generally do it to me. I I personally, I really liked how it was written. I love the two brothers i kind of enjoyed how it jumped in and in, um, in time between their two stories i enjoyed kind of how it was dealing with grief i thoroughly enjoyed the setting uh it was great to hear i actually read paddy clark ha, ha ha um a couple of months ago and i i just i loved the book i thought it was brilliant my own man grew up um around that area of dublin and it was mad to hear the kind of the different stories of different lives and it like some of the stuff that ma'am used to say it, it could have been that sort of thing. Um, so I, I, I almost felt a little bit of a personal connection to it.
0: I found it really emotional to read. Like, I remember the book, for reading that for the first time, I found quite an emotional read as well. But this book, the more Finn's story went on, I thought as well it built a sense of dread very well. You know, and the first episode, that was the first sign or whatever with the sore legs and the bruises. And you're like, oh, no, you know what's coming. You knew what was coming, but it was still very impactful and hard-hitting. Marty, did you find it kind of
3: an emotional read? Oh, I really did. I really did. It's probably, one of the, <laughs> same as yourselves, I would say it's possibly one of the most emotional books I've ever read. And I know that might be down to the fact that I mightn't have read too many emotionals. but I think the whole book felt so natural. And as you said, Orrin Candid, like it felt like a really like organic portrayal of Dublin or those, as you say, that set, and, like it, all the little phrases, like, you know, like bet into the leopard prince, or, like, the band called Absolutely and things like that. Like, I thought it was really, really funny. Like, in that. I think as a result of that, it felt more emotional, you know? And just as you said, like, I thought you really, really conveyed the grief or the feeling of grief and dealing with it so, so well. Like, how, how difficult it is. Like, you know, there's that one line, though, at Finn's funeral that really got me. The funeral was like grand as a fucking old man's funeral with a teddy on the coffin that you hadn't seen in years, and a jersey of a team you'd long since abandoned. There was none of you there. Like, I highlighted that, and literally typed in, fuck, like, F-A-C-K, like, with A, because it was, like, it was so, I was like, oh, my God. It was really, really hard-hidden, but, but no, I, I really, really enjoyed it.
2: I don't think it really sucked the same card with me. Firstly, I think obviously it's going to be to some extent emotional when you're dealing with a kid that's dying of cancer, you know. I mean, that's kind of a foregone conclusion. But so obviously in that way it is impactful. But I didn't find it really struck the same chord of me as, like, say, the Fault in Our Stars actually even would be one example. Or even the Boy in the Striped Pajamas when, like, they're doing kind of the same thing. And it's his perception of all these adult themes that are going on. I just didn't think it really, it really resonated to that extent. The, the, the bit of it, the bit of it I suppose, I did really enjoy was was when Finn was kind of coming to terms with his cancer, and he was he was learning about everything to do with it, and this, and it's, it's such an adult and such a serious thing, and he was dealing with it in his own kind of through his own lens and through the eyes of a child and stuff, and I thought that was really well done. And like, you know, even though he's gone on about how he's getting McDonald's and going to the cinema and stuff, and it's great. And you get this sense of the impending doom that he's only really kind of learning to process in his own way. And I thought that was great. Another thing I have to say, actually, was that I think, like, Joe's kind of character arc kind of, it fell off kind of sharply for me. Like, one minute, he's this white knight. He's this guy who's like, you know, ringing an ambulance for the guard who's like nearly dying in the toilet, even though he's going to get in trouble himself. And he's this great guy. And then suddenly all this kind of, all that kind of common sense just kind of goes out the window then at some point and then he's just this lad who's going to get into a life of crime despite the fact that he knows it's a terrible idea and I don't know for for, like for me then he kind of his character kind of didn't do it for me then after after that point
1: I thought about that actually Franny when I was reading it and I I kind of thought that was nearly a strong point of the book that despite the fact that he was an intelligent young lad and he would so much going from like that the the kind of pull of these issues and drugs and anything like that like it's just so simple that you can just fall into it and external factors can just play a part you know his his mate and um, borrowing money to do that course or whatever kind of he knows it's a bad idea he knows he shouldn't he knows he's kind of turning to his dad but yes he just can't that that idea that like if you're raised with that you don't know anything else He that's that's all he knows as to how to fix things so he he thinks he's doing the, the right thing. Still a bit of a Robin Hood idea to it, but
3: I'd agree with you there, Owen. Like I, I think that kind of there was kind of the sense of inevitability that and like that Joe had picked up on that himself and that like he's kind of felt like everyone everyone thinks this of me anyway. I may as well just live up to it. Like, you know, it's I I think that really captured the I don't know what what the word for it is, like the
1: Yeah. I just just realizing now there's a little bit of I'm not sure if he meant it or whatever, but a little bit of symmetry between the two storylines, the two brothers. What was the word you just used there, Marty? How
3: inevitability? You know,
1: yeah, between the cancer and the life of crime. Both both brothers were setting these paths and there was nothing that it could do to the changes, sort of thing. Um, and it was just luck of the draw which one ended up going which way.
3: That's really good. That's really interesting.
0: I thought there was, I thought it was peppered nicely, as emotional it was and quite heavy subject matter. Like I highlighted a couple of really funny parts. Joe's makes some comic about his parents to his dad and his dad says, Well you're looking the dog's bollocks compared to me, son I thought it was so good or when Jasmine and Finn go to cinema with Joe and Jas they bring it sneak in their own kind of goodies and popcorn and stuff. Jasmine shakes Joe's can before she gives it to him. And then I think the line is she gives Joe's a sneaky shake before passing it over. Your cheeky bitch, yell, Joey L to phantom sprayed all over him. I thought that was
3: brilliant. As emotional as it was, I found nearly equally as funny. I found some of the scenes in the pub. Actually, the, in general, the story kind of felt like a mixture between an owl loud sitting in the corner of a, of a pub with the fire on and the, the arms arms folded, telling yarns, as I was saying to, to Fee. A cross between that or someone, you know, whispering the... Whispering the misgivings or the, the the misfortunes of someone at a at a wake, an Irish wake, you know, telling stories about it. The stories in the pub, like like Ned getting stuck in the door was fucking hilarious. Like I I read really, <laughs> that whole chapter I was I was laughing the whole way through. Ned, you're not even a bleeding cripple. Would you just get out of the chair and into the jacks and we'll say no more of fucking about it? Like it was so anybody who's lived in Dublin knows that's exactly what you'll hear. Any pub anywhere, like anywhere in Ireland, really, you'll hear that kind of stuff, like really well captured. Like
1: I thought Ned was a brilliant character and just that, like you can, I know lads like that who'd be, they'd con people who have met them for the first time at thinking tank
0: <laughs> they need the wheelchair, you know, that's uh, brilliant. As Fee said herself, I suppose, that I think polarising was the word she used for the ending or the climax to Joe's story. I'm interested to think what you think, lads. To be honest, I got very confused by it. (laughs) I
1: was sitting in bed reading it and getting a little bit tired. And I was like, Jesus, have I I skipped over a page or two or something? And it was interesting to actually hear Fee talk about it and how she wanted it to feel chaotic. Definitely succeeded uh, with this reader. But I just thought I wanted it kind of some little bit of closure or some... Put some control on it, so I kind of had some idea of who was where and what was going on. The mention of Dad kind of coming out just kind of completely threw me. Away. Look, with any book, the end always that's what that's what you that's what you're kind of left. With. I know we've kind of mentioned this on the podcast before, and that and it, it for me anyway it did kind of leave a little bit of confusion. As much as I was enjoying the book, I was kind of left with this: Jesus, what just happened there?
2: Yeah, I was quite confused by it myself as well i remember i had re- i read i finished it after you did and i kind of saw you saying in the whatsapp that you were a little bit thrown by the ending so i was kind of when i was getting to that stage of the book i was kind of maybe a little bit alert for twists or whatever but yeah still like i got to the end of the chapter and i kind of felt i thought i knew what had happened but i wasn't 100 sure and it was kind of yeah it's a little bit frustrating I suppose. fiona doesn't really deal with it afterwards then either it's not it's not made exactly clear what happened so like yeah it's, it's a bit frustrating all right
3: yeah, I'm I kinda I agree with, with the with the rest of you. Is like I, I thought it kinda came out of nowhere like, and um I know v said she wanted to feel a bit chaotic, but Da being there, like there was enough chaos there with, with Carty being shot and falling on top of, of Joe and the whole description of blood everywhere, like that was fine. That that worked, but I, I felt there was no call for Dad to be there at all. Like you, I couldn't work that he escaped. That he was he released. I probably was going to give it like five stars on on Goodreads or whatever. But as you say, or like the, the ending is what sticks with you, and it did probably hamper my my view of it. But I was so deeply invested in the book that I was able to overlook it.
0: Yeah, I had a funny one with it. as I read it, like I was very gripped by it the first time. I like was so frenetic and chaotic, and like what's going on here? Like I read it back afterwards once or twice which I think is always a good sign and I enjoyed it more and more each time I read it I think so I'm a big fan of an ending that leaves you guessing in general whether it's a TV show or like a film or a book that you read that something you think about after you finish I've been thinking about that chapter long since I put the book down which for me I think is a good sign but I can see Fina point out how it could be very divisive some people do not like that at all they don't want ambiguity. I think, lads, that moved so nicely to our first rate expectations of season two. New season, same old puns. You'd be glad to hear. I think <laughs> I'll, I'll start with you, Show sure, Marty. Do you want to give us your rating for Boys Don't Cry and why?
3: Yeah, um, I suppose as I was saying, like I was a big fan of this book. Like, And for 85% of it, I was looking at giving it a nine or higher or whatever. But um, like, as I say, like the last little bit, probably probably took the score down a bit, but overall I thought it was like a really, really candid portrayal of inner city Dublin and how you can get caught in, in those, those cycles and as Fee was talking about choice, like I thought that was really really interesting. you know the, the mix between the really emotional and the, the hilarity of it all really it made me really enjoy it and I think I think I'll, I couldn't give it less than, than an eight. I think I'm gonna, gonna go with an eight.
1: Yeah, I was. I think myself and Marty had a similar view on it. If you were to ask me this question when I just finished the book, it, it probably wouldn't got the best rating. But like definitely after having a chat about it and Smith, you were right. It did kind of sit in my head for a while, and I was thinking about it a while after. And it did read for me anyway a little bit like Robbie Doyle books, and I love that. Uh, again, it's kind of the sentimentality of of home for me as well, and just Dublin and all that sort of thing. I thought it was a great read. And as I said, I couldn't put it down. Just kept reading, kept reading, which is always a good sign for a book. Loved how it was written. Thought it was a really strong first book. And I'm going to go with a seven and a half. Uh,
2: Yeah, I didn't love it, I have to say. At the start, it was kind of pulling me in a bit. I was kind of like, I liked the ambiguity around what was going to happen to Finn. And I kind of thought she created created suspense very well with that. Yeah, it just kind of lost me around the middle. After that party scene in particular, I was like, oh, I don't know. And then I kind of find the, I found the ending a bit thrown out as well. And as it's, as it said that the main climax scene of, of the ending was, was problematic for me as well. So I'm going to go to five.
0: I'd probably be similar to you, Marty. I'd give it an eight. Anything that moves you so much, like I don't get emotional at books, but I did find as Finn's story progressed, that it was, I really got sucked into it and the hospital scenes in particular, I think there's one scene where his parents are kind of embracing on the bed and you could see like it's every parent's worst nightmare and that was really well portrayed yeah as much as like it confused me i've been thinking about the book a lot since i finished it and the kind of climax of the story and i definitely would recommend it to people or and i like what you said as well about like the roddy doyle element like it definitely captures an essence of dublin and great quirks of like irish character and stuff which i always enjoy in any book and i thought it was uh really interesting that Fina picked Night Boat to Tangier is one of her five books to recommend because I love that book. And I know, Oren, I put that, I told you to read that as well and you loved it. Excellent. And
1: for the same reasons, it's that kind of, I don't know if you call it kind of dark humor, that sort of proper Irish humor sort of thing. And I was it was great to hear her actually mention that. I was like, oh, class. So
0: yeah, for those reasons, I'm going to give it an eight.
3: So in absence of Podge, the average rating from the Lower Hour for Boys Don't Cry is 7.1.
0: Great stuff. That's a good high score. Great book to start off the new season with as well. Couldn't ask for better. Mm -hmm. Uh, And a massive thank you again to Fina for joining us. We really enjoyed that. And um, if you haven't read the book, hopefully the interview on this podcast has uh, inspired you to do so. Yeah, next up we have Magpie Murders by Anthony Horowitz. It's her second book of season two. It's a kind of story within a story, murder mystery, if you like. Midsummer Murders or anything like that might be right up your alley. Um, so we'll be back with that in a couple of weeks as i mentioned at the start of the podcast if you want to jump on to com or our social media pages we've got a full list of all the books we're covering and in what order and in the meantime take care and we'll see you soon